So have, have any of you ever worked as a bill collector? Anybody? Okay, I saw, I saw a couple of hands go up, right? <laughs> it, it, it's not a fun job, is it, if you've done it? When, uh, when Vicky's dad first opened his TV and uh, appliance store back in Pennsylvania, he sold a lot of items on credit, a lot of different merchandise. And it, it usually fell to my wife to be the one to, to call the people to remind them that they were either behind on their payments or to be the one to call and schedule guys to pick up merchandise that folks weren't making their payments on. And after a few years, it really kind of took its toll on her because she eventually realized that people will make up almost any kind of crazy story to get out of paying a bill. Is that your experience? Yeah, make up any story to get right. Almost any kind of crazy story to dodge a debt. Kind of like the story of the, the, the farmer and the bill collector from East Texas. It seems there was a farmer who borrowed several thousand dollars to purchase a small cotton farm for he and his wife. And, and he worked it diligently every day. But because of poor weather conditions, that particular year his production was low, and so he fell behind on his payments. Finally, a debt collector from the bank knocked on the door of the farmhouse, and the, the farmer's wife came to the door to answer, and the bill collector said, well, hi, ma'am, is Fred home? She said, no, I, I'm sorry, Fred's gone for cotton. So the man left. The next day, the bill collector tried again, knocks on the door and says, well, hi, is Fred here today? No, sir, she said, I, I'm afraid that Fred's gone for cotton. Well, by the time the third day came, and he, he's back, right, he started to get kind of upset and and feeling like maybe he's getting the runaround. So when the wife answers the door, he says, well, I suppose Fred is, is gone out for more cotton again, right? Well, the farmer's wife started to cry, and, and she looked really sad, and she said, well, no, Fred died yesterday. And, and he was so stunned by that answer that the bill collector just got back in his car and left. But when he got back to the office, he started kicking himself for not asking for a death certificate or for some kind of proof and having just taken the wife's word for Fred's death. And so suspicious that he's just being avoided, he decides to wait a week and investigate the town cemetery for himself. So he waits the week, drives down to the graveyard, just sure that he's going to outsmart this farmer and, and his wife trying to skip out on the debt. But you know, when he got there, sure enough, there was poor Fred's tombstone marked with the inscription, our beloved Fred, gone but not forgotten. Yeah, I know that one was corny. <laughs> and uh, I know. I see, I told you being a bill collector was a tough job. Right. And today our reading, in our reading, the Apostle Paul has some things to say about the collection business and about the debt of love that we owe to God and to one another. As we continue our look in the book of Romans, we're going to be today in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. And this is all the more important for you to know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. 
for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's true. You know, the well-known American poet Ogden Nash uh, wrote, some debts are fun when you're acquiring them, but no debts are fun when you set about retiring them. That's true, isn't it? Because being in debt is never fun and it's never easy. Now, as a country, we know something about debt, don't we? Our national debt is astronomical. It is roughly right now about $20 trillion. And if you were to break that down, it would be about uh, $62,000 per citizen or $168,000 per actual taxpayer. And that debt is not going down anytime soon. Now, as a state, we know about debt, too. The state of Florida debt right now is somewhere around $125 billion, which, if you break it down, it comes to about $12,500 per state resident. And just like our country's debt, our state debt isn't going away anytime soon. As a people, we know about that. Individually, we're accustomed to it. I read a statistic that said the average American family has $7,500 of credit card debt at an interest rate of about 21%. And that doesn't include the other things we owe, like on our homes or our cars or education or medical expenses or or any other payment plans you might have. And it could take months or or years or decades even to pay off that kind of debt. That's incredible. And when we've got debts like those, you know, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and and anxious and ashamed trying to figure out how we're ever going to pay it all back. But we know we've got to pay it back because otherwise there are consequences. We could lose our our property to foreclosure. We could have difficulty opening a credit card, or we we may have to pay a higher debt on credit that we already have. And in some extreme cases, we might face legal action. And just when you think that all of that might drive you absolutely crazy, the Apostle Paul comes along and tells us to add one more debt to all of those. Like as if, what's one more when you've got so many already? He said in in verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. So the Apostle Paul says, No matter what other bills we may have, we are to owe one another the debt of love. And that's an image we can relate to because we know what it's like to owe someone something, don't we? We know what it's like to, to feel indebted to someone. And because of that, Paul's point carries with it the idea of, of ongoing action for that person. Because we know what they've done for us. And in the same way, because what Christ has done for you and me, we can't be selfish any longer. We have to think of other people. We need to think of others and of their needs. In fact, one of my, uh, and Ray, you'll agree with me on this, one of my favorite books of the Bible and favorite verses is from 1 John chapter 3, where he writes, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Let us show the truth by our actions. In order to be a good neighbor, like I was telling the kids, We've got to take action. We can't just see the needs of others and not act on them. That's why Proverbs 3.28 says, if you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow and I'll help you then. You've got to do it now. Just like this church did when we saw the needs of the, the men at Loving Hands Ministry who were here with us Wednesday night for Bible study. Instead of saying, you know what, we love you fellas and we'll pray for you. And we pulled together and as a a group, we collect those non-perishable food items on the first Sunday of every month to deliver to them. But, you know, it doesn't always have to be something that big. It doesn't have to be that big a gesture. Maybe the need that we find in front of us is simply opening the door for someone whose hands are full. 
Maybe the need is offering an encouraging word to someone who's depressed. Maybe it's offering to give a ride to someone that doesn't drive to come to church or, or to the grocery store. But whatever the need is, we have to show by our actions that we care about the people around us. And you know, in today's self-centered world, people will definitely take notice of us. It reminded me of the story when I was working on this. When Vicki and I first moved here about 20 years ago from our little hometown in Washington, Pennsylvania, it was kind of a culture shock. I mean, we, we were used to small town life, but we weren't really used to the idea of, of Southern hospitality. So our, one of our first Sundays here, we went to one of the local buffet restaurants, and I, I go up to the line, and I grab a plate, and, and I give a plate to Vicky, and we go in the food line, when all of a sudden, this complete stranger walks up to my wife and grabs the plate out of her hand and says, oh, honey, let me help you with that. Now, I know we both looked at her like, what do you want? Because you just don't do that up north, right? But the truth is, the only thing that she really wanted was to help a young lady walking on crutches to be able to get her meal, someone that she didn't even know. And that's the kind of debt of love that God wants us to owe to one another. And the good news is we can start today. As soon as we leave here, we can start to pay attention to the things that are going on around us. We can start to talk to people with a a smile and a friendly voice and get to know them because the more you know people, the more you can help them. In fact, there's a a lady here among us who's very dear to me who shared with me that she set a goal for herself to do one good deed every single day. And if possible, not to let that person who's on the receiving end of that good deed know who it came from. And I know, I'm not going to call her out, of course, but, and I, but I know she would testify that as you look for opportunities to help other people, those opportunities are going to present themselves more easily than you might think. And you might find that the better neighbor you become, the more blessings that you receive from God. You know, that's one of the promises of his word. And going from here, Paul also notes another reason though we should owe this debt of love to one another. He said, if you love your neighbor, you fulfill the requirements of God's law. God is saying that love brings those Ten Commandments to fulfillment. It brings them about to their divinely intended outcome. And he tells us how to do that by taking each of those that he mentions and expanding on the moral law found in the Ten Commandments. And he starts out with the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number seven, he begins there because the family is the bedrock of society and a microcosm of the church. And when we recognize in that fundamental relationship the debt of love that we owe to our spouse, it drives us to honor our marriages in the things that we do and in the things that we say to one another. And it drives us into honoring the marriages of others, too. In fact, you know, when uh, I ask the kids about the commandments, when JJ and Kitty uh, go to bed at night, they usually say the Ten Commandments as part of our evening devotions. And one of the kids' versions that they use for that commandment says, you shall not break your marriage promise or make anyone else break theirs. I like that. You shall not break your marriage promise or make anyone else break theirs. But that's a message that's not so popular today anymore, is it? I mean, when was the last time you actually heard the word adultery? Because popular culture has made it so acceptable and just easy to to see it happening in the world that we put a kind of a pretty name on it now. Now we say someone's having an affair. Doesn't that sound like fun? We're having an affair. But where's the love? And I say that because I think we've 
gotten to the point as a society that we hardly recognize in the secular world what love is anymore or understand what it's all about. If you went outside, took a random survey, most people today would probably tell you that love is an emotion that's both unconditional and non-judgmental. But try telling that to the husband or wife who's been left behind for a younger model and tell them not to judge or to be upset. And if that really were the case, if we really believe that love doesn't set boundaries or make distinctions, what do we make of God's love? Because on the one hand, we're told that our creator has unfailing love for us, but on the other, we're told that he will ultimately judge all of us, each and every one of us. And brothers and sisters, even though popular culture may think otherwise, true love and genuine compassion cannot be found apart from limitations and sound judgment. In fact, the word compassion itself comes from ecclesiastical Latin, and it means to suffer with. It means to see a situation and size it up and do something about it with empathy and with a passion to respond to that need. For instance, like if you see someone living in poverty and, and you say that's wrong, people shouldn't have to live like that. What you've done is passed a moral judgment on the situation. You've formed a conviction to do something about it, and hopefully you've stepped in to help. When we see injustice in the world and we call it out, we pass a judgment on that issue. We make a moral judgment. We say that's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. And if you're loving and compassionate, you also decide to do something about it beyond just making a post on Facebook. Because compassion and love cannot exist apart from truth and judgment and action. And in that very same way, God longs to shine the light of his moral judgment into our hearts and onto our passions and into our relationships, not to expose us and not to shame us, but to transform us into his likeness because of how much he loves us. But God's love for us doesn't exist without judgment. It can't. Because without it, true intimacy with God wouldn't be possible. So you see, the gospel message is about a God who sees the way that we're living, who sees the situation that we're in, and he passes judgment on us. He sees the pain that we are causing ourselves and the pain that we cause to others, and he makes a verdict on our sin and on our pride. But he loves us so much and has so much compassion for us that he came into this world to be broken so that you and I could know wholeness in him. And to gain the ability to love one another just the way he's loved us. And, you know, one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we model that in the church as a body is through church discipline. Because, you know, as a corporate body of believers, we are commanded to speak the truth of God's word to the world and to rightly expect it to be lived out among our members. You know, just as, as parents expect to exercise discipline in a family, God commands, he doesn't suggest, he commands that the local church exercise discipline and accountability among its members. In, in fact, in Protestant churches, the preaching of the word faithfully, the right administration of the sacraments, and exercising church discipline have been identified as the three marks of a true church. But, you know, since the 1960s, church discipline has almost disappeared. Because as a people, we become too independent. We become too relativistic. In fact, you know, you've probably seen those T-shirts or bumper stickers with the slogan that says, only God can judge me. Have you seen those? And that's true in the ultimate sense. But as long as you are here and you're still in this world, 
your church leadership is just as accountable to call members to repentance and godly obedience as we are to call out to someone on the street if they're about to step out in front of a speeding car. And we wouldn't think twice about doing that, right? We wouldn't think twice about doing that. We wouldn't hesitate to tell someone not to drink poison or not to touch something that would scald them, but we'll stand by silently and let someone make a wreck of their lives or sear their conscience or or ruin their relationship with Christ as they kill their immortal soul and make us accomplices. That's something to think about. And then linking on to, to that kind of idea, onto that thought, Paul then kind of circles back around to commandment number six, and he says, you shall not commit murder. Because owing a, a genuine debt of love won't let us hurt one another. It demands that we respect every stage of life from conception to natural death. And, and we could spend a lot of time talking about abortion or, or euthanasia or about genocide or ethnic cleansing or terrorism. Or looking even maybe all the way at the rise of all these mass shootings that led up to Las Vegas. But you know what? In this, in this passage, Jesus basically looks past all of those things, as horrifying as they are, and goes straight to the root of the issue. He told us in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. You must not commit murder or you will be subject to the judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. That's pretty condemning, isn't it? And you know, all people are created in the image of God. And because of that, we're precious. And any attack, be it physical or verbal or unresolved anger, is an attack on God. And God takes that very seriously. And I don't know about you, but that's awfully condemning to me personally. You know, as Christ warns us of the danger of words spoken in anger or or thought in anger or belittling looks or demeaning gestures or passing on those really juicy stories and kind of half-truths that come our way that we like to share every now and then. Because, you know, all of those things have the power to destroy. They've got the power to kill spirits and relationships and break hearts and destroy marriages, and ruin lives. All of that because of the, the flapping of the tongue. You know, there's an old, old uh, rabbinical story I want to share with you about a man who spread gossip about his neighbor, but afterwards felt convicted, and he goes to the local rabbi to confess his sins. The rabbi had compassion on him, and he agreed to help him find forgiveness and make amends with his neighbor, but the rabbi said, first, I got a task for you. Your task is to go to the top of the highest hill with a feather pillow Tear it open and release all the feathers. So the guy is relieved that his forgiveness is going to come with such an easy act of contrition, and he fulfills it immediately. He runs back to the rabbi, anxious for confirmation of his forgiveness, and the rabbi assigns him one more task. He says, now I need you to go back and retrieve all of those feathers that you released. And the man is stunned, absolutely stunned by such an impossible task. And then the rabbi explains each of those feathers that you released represents someone who heard that false gossip about your neighbor and formed an opinion about them without knowing all the facts. So for you and I, before we repeat that story that may kill someone's reputation, ask yourself, is it true? Is it fair? And even if it is, is it necessary for us to repeat it? Because remember, when you and I embarrass someone publicly, anyone, whether it's a neighbor or spouse or a child, 
We're like an armed robber. And the words that we use are like weapons aimed at that person's heart while we steal their good name. And Paul takes that thought and he springboards from that to commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Meaning that to fulfill our debt of love, we not only do not take what isn't ours, we actually help to protect and defend the possessions and the income of other people. Love doesn't steal, even when it would be easy to do it. I want to give you kind of a, a negative example of that. It's like when the mafia needed to, to hire a, a new man to make weekly collections from all the private businesses that they were protecting. You know how that works. But they were under some pressure from the police force, so they decided to, to hire a deaf man because if he got caught, he wouldn't be able to communicate with the police. They'd have a difficult time interrogating him and knowing what he was doing. So they hire a deaf man. Well, the first week, he's really successful, and he collects over $50,000. But he got greedy, decided to keep the money and stash it in a safe place. But the mafia bosses quickly realized the money was late, so they sent a couple of their hoods over to the deaf man. And when they find him, they ask him, where's the money? But, of course, he, he's deaf, so he can't hear the questions. He can't communicate. And the mafia guys drag him off to an interpreter. When they get there, the, the mafia hood says to the interpreter, ask him where the money is. The interpreter signs for him, where's the money? The deaf man signs back, I don't know what you're talking about. So the interpreter tells the hoods, he says he doesn't know what you mean. He doesn't know what you're talking about. The mafia hood pulls out a gun and puts it to the deaf man's ear. It says to the interpreter, now ask him again, where's the money? The interpreter signs again, where's the money? This time the deaf man signs back a the $50,000 is in Central Park, third tree stump from the left, just down from the 78th Street gate. But now realizing, as the interpreter, he's got the upper hand, he looks at the hood and says, well, he says he still doesn't know what you're talking about, and in fact, he doesn't think you have the guts to pull that trigger. You see, it's a true debt of love, a true debt of love protects and watches out for the property and the possessions and the welfare of others. That's why Paul points out that not only is love the fulfillment of the law, it's the summary of the law too, all wrapped up in the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these, these acts of love that we're commanded to do are all those same things we'd like to have done for us, right? They're the golden rule because who wants to be hurt? Who wants to be stolen from or, or lied about or abused? I, I know I don't. Well, you know what? Jesus did all of that for us. He offered his holy and perfect life for us. He was beaten. He was abused. He was lied about. He suffered. He was betrayed. He was put to death in our place to settle a debt with God that you and I could never repay. Our Savior endured the consequences of our debt and what we deserve. He, he bore the wrath of God and the punishment that belongs to me. And he did that for us. And his righteousness and good works are credited and applied to my account. And our sin is paid for by Jesus' blood so that we're debt-free and forgiven by God and in turn can be indebted to him and to each other in love. And Martin Luther explained this really well. He wrote, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Yet a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant and subject to all. You know, as Christians, that's the paradox that we live in as we live out our Christian lives. 
as we live them out in that grace of God that covers all of our sins, even as it prompts us and moves us to live a life of debt that owes one another, that owes to each of our Christian brothers perfect love. So I want to ask us today, can we love each other as God has called us to love? Can we correct one another without condemning? Can we live a life without limiting what we would do in the service of our king? And I'm here to tell you that according to his word, we can. We can do it if we depend on his spirit and his power and his plan to truly reach out to one another in love, not in a a passive, lifeless way, but actively, energetically, enthusiastically, because we know how urgent it is. We know how late it's getting. We know time is running out, so he calls us to wake up because our salvation now is nearer than when we first believed. We need to love one another today as a debt that can't be repaid. Because, brothers and sisters, what's one more debt when we have the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that covers ours? And he calls out to us today, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and fulfill the law of love. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you that you you did love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to live and to die for us, Father, even though we have run so far from you. We thank you, Lord, that we said in Sunday school this morning that you can run faster. We thank you that you have pursued us and brought us to this place. And I ask you now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to open hearts and open minds to the truth of the good news of the gospel and that your name and word would go forward because you promised it will never return to you in vain. In Jesus' name we pray.